A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of murder and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the werewolf. Today's episode combines a re-envisioned ancient Norse saga with some of the more well-known details about the werewolf from cultures around the world for dramatic effect. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. Once a week, our show explores history's most terrifying monsters by investigating where these creatures come from and what cultural need they fulfill, we can perhaps make them a little less scary, though no less fascinating. Today, we're exploring the legend of the werewolf. A werewolf is a human who's been cursed to transform into a bloodthirsty wolf-man hybrid. We all know this. The legend offers an explanation for how some seemingly normal individuals can suddenly give in to a bout of madness. It expresses the human fear that we can never truly know who another person is on the inside. As always, head to Spotify to find free episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals. To stream, open the app and type our show's name in the search bar. Coming up, we'll dive into the chilling origins of the werewolf. The shapeshifter is one of humanity's oldest fears. Since the earliest stories and myths, there have been tales of humans transforming into animals. Ancient Greek immortals can turn into whatever creatures they desire, while ancient Egyptian gods often have animal heads. Both show that the dichotomy between human and beast has long held our attention. The werewolf has been a constant in mythology for centuries, as some version of the creature appears in most cultures across the globe. In some stories, the werewolf can change shape at a whim, while other legends claim that items like a magical wolf pelt or an ointment are needed. The modern-day werewolf is created from a bite by another infected individual. Once bitten, the new victim will experience a brutal metamorphosis from human to beast during the full moon. The werewolf's lunar connection is based on a centuries-old correlation between the full moon and erratic behavior. In ancient Greek and Roman mythology, the moon was linked to the supernatural power of the gods. But during the rise of Christianity in the Middle Ages, the moon became entwined with witchcraft. One of the first recordings linking the werewolf and the moon was from an English cleric in the 1200s who wrote, We often see men changed into wolves at the turn of the moon. The fear that the werewolf causes is twofold. The first is literal. It is a ravenous, killing machine with no objectives other than to eat or destroy. It is strong and fast, with sharp teeth and an unrelenting hunger. The werewolf will rip you apart before you have even realized it is there. More chilling than its vicious nature is the idea that the creature you face was once a man. It could be your neighbor, your friend, your lover. But when it changes its shape, there is no stopping it. 
it makes us wonder if there's a wolf in all of us. And the only thing that separates us from the monster is that our wolf hasn't yet been released. The following story is pulled from a section of the Norse epic, The Saga of the Volsungs, and re-envisioned with certain creative changes. Written in the 13th century by an unknown author, the multi-generational tale follows an Icelandic hero's family line. Wolves frequently appear in Norse mythology. Their god, Odin, kept two as companions, and in one apocalyptic legend, it's said that Odin will someday be completely swallowed by a wolf named Fenrir. Not even a god is safe from the wolf's powerful jaws. The outlaw Sigmund gazed up at the night sky, breathing in and out with a meditative rhythm. On the other side of the fire pit, his 11-year-old son, Sinfiotli, tossed and turned before he finally sat up. He looked a bit embarrassed as he asked his father for a story. The wind stirred the trees around them, as if in answer to his son's request. Sigmund knew Sinfiotli wanted a tale full of magic and heroic deeds, but the time for such stories had long passed. Sigmund lowered his voice to a whisper. He told Sinfiotli of the evil king Sighe, who had stolen his sister Signy for his bride. His voice trembled when he spoke of how he, his father, and his brothers were held in Sighe's cellar like animals. Sigmund said bitterly, and every evening he sent his mother down to check on us. She was a shapeshifter, a wolf. She would feed on my family one by one. Sigmund fell quiet. He had been last, spared because his sister had smeared honey on his face to confuse the wolf. His brothers and father had been ripped apart, but he had only had to face the wolf's rancid breath as she licked his face. Sigmund glared at his son and muttered quietly, that is why you must train harder, because King Sighe must die. For 11 years, he had lived in this forest as an outlaw, training Sinfiotli to aid him in revenge. But his son was weak, there was no denying it. Sigmund sighed. Revenge was a prison. Of all his brothers, only he had escaped with his life. But it did not mean that he had been spared. Sigmund crouched behind a bush, a bow in his hand. His icy blue eyes stared at the dirt road beyond the brush, where five of the king's soldiers were plundering an elderly merchant's horse-drawn cart. Sigmund slowly withdrew an arrow from his quiver. He breathed out, steady and deep, as he pointed its tip at a soldier. His eyes fluttered closed while he whispered a prayer to Odin. 
Sinfiotli knelt beside him, watching the soldiers uneasily. Sigmund felt a flash of annoyance when he noticed his son's shaking hands. Catching his father's eye, Sinfiotli flushed and said, Are there too many? A stupid question. Sigmund angrily shoved the bow into his son's hand. Maybe Sinfiotli would stop being so afraid if he took some action. Sinfiotli grasped the bow nervously. He stood on trembling legs and aimed. Sinfiotli loosed the arrow. It soared right past a soldier and stuck into the merchant's cart. Sigmund cursed under his breath. The soldiers ran about, yelling orders and pointing to the woods. The merchant ducked under his cart for cover. Sigmund burst from the trees with his sword raised. He ran his blade through a soldier before rolling to the ground and out of harm's way. He was on his feet again in an instant, hacking and slashing at another pair of soldiers before the men could mount a counterattack. He glanced back at the woods for just a moment to see Sinfiotli with the bow and arrow raised. His hands shook violently as he looked for a shot. A soldier managed to cut the horse loose from the merchant's cart and fled at a gallop down the road. Sigmund yelled to Sinfiotli, who took aim. The arrow flew harmlessly past the man as he disappeared down the road. With a cry, Sigmund slid his sword across the neck of the last soldier, slitting his throat. The man dropped to the ground. Sigmund knelt exhausted amongst the corpses of the four fallen men. Sinfiotli lingered nearby, his cheeks bright red. Sigmund knew that look. He wanted his father to tell him that it was all right, but it wasn't. And Sinfiotli did not need to be coddled. He needed to be hardened. Killing must be an instinct, as easy and necessary as eating. Sigmund gruffly instructed Sinfiotli to take what they needed from the cart. Sinfiotli hesitated, his gaze fixed on the poor merchant who still cowered beneath it. Sigmund yelled sharply, What are you waiting for? Must I do everything that you cannot? Sinfiotli jumped to work. Sigmund looked down the road where the surviving soldier had fled. They did not have much time. The forest would be crawling with the king's men by morning. He looked up at the sound of a bird's cry. In the sky above, a raven circled the road. His worries abated. It was a sign. Odin was watching over them. Dusk approached as Sigmund led his son through the woods. He looked back, noticing Sinfiotli was falling behind. Seeing his father's glare, Sinfiotli increased his pace. Sigmund suddenly stopped. Up ahead, a small cabin with a moss-thatched roof came into view through the trees. It looked deserted. He looked up to see the ravens circling again. Another sign from Odin. The house must be safe, or better yet, had something of value. 
Sigmund nudged the door open. He entered, bow raised, body tense. Two men lay on the floor. They had long, white beards, and their skin was layered with grime. Sigmund would have thought them dead but for the steady rise and fall of their chests. He gently kicked the foot of the man closest to him. No movement. <gasps> he turned when he heard Sinfiotli gasp. He was about to scold his son for making too much noise, but Sinfiotli's terrified face stopped him. His son was pointing above him at the ceiling. Sigmund lifted his gaze. Two large wolf pelts hung above them. The animal's dead black eyes stared blankly at the father and son below. Sigmund felt the hairs on the back of his neck rise. There was something about these skins that wasn't quite right, and yet he couldn't look away. He was mesmerized. His hand slowly reached upwards to grasp a handful of thick, black fur. Coming up, Sigmund and Sinfiotli find their inner beasts. Listeners, who doesn't love a good ghost story? Rattling chains, mysteriously moving objects, unfinished business. I am ready for all things spooky, and so is Parcast Network. Starting October 1st, we're bringing you the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. Every Thursday on the new original series, Haunted Places Ghost Stories, Alastair Murden summons a new spine-tingling tale of wraiths, phantoms, and chilling apparitions. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, and even ancient Rome. Don't miss stone-cold classics like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish, and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. And The Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. You can find and follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search ParCast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows. Now back to the story. Sigmund had been living in the forest with his son, Sinfiotli, as an outlaw. For years, he had trained his timid child to be a fighter so that they could seek revenge on the evil king who had killed their family. While trekking through the woods, Sigmund and his son discovered a small cabin with two sleeping men and a hanging pair of wolf pelts. One of the earliest written depictions of a man becoming a wolf is from 2150 BCE in the Sumerian and Babylonian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh. In this tale, a woman curses her ex-lover by turning him into a ravenous wolf. Hundreds of years later, the bloodthirsty monster we know today appeared in the Greek myth of Lycaon, which was mentioned in Plato's Republic. 
In this story, King Lycaon feeds Zeus the meat of a murdered child to prove that he would not recognize the taste of human flesh. The test is to reveal that Zeus is mortal rather than a god. Naturally, Zeus discovers his despicable deed and punishes Lycaon by turning him into a wolf. This myth introduces cannibalism to the werewolf archetype. Lycaon's transformation into a monster that craves human flesh is a suitable punishment for his crime. The Greek author Ovid expanded on the myth of King Lycaon in his work Metamorphoses, where he suggests that becoming a monster was not a departure from who the king really was. Ovid wrote, he was still possessed by bloodlust. Lycaon was always monstrous on the inside, but by becoming a wolf, he was forced to take on a form that reflected his inner monster. Sinfiotli trembled as his father touched the dangling skins, running his fingers through their fur. He stepped forward to stop him, but hesitated. Sigmund wouldn't appreciate his son implying he knew better than the seasoned warrior. Worse than the beating that followed was the disappointed look he would receive. Sigmund took down a pelt to stare into the beast's dead eyes. Sinfiotli shifted and was startled by the sharp creak of the floorboards. When Sigmund looked up, his cold blue gaze was confused, as if he had forgotten Sinfiotli was there. He held out the pelt and said, Here, feel this. It is heavier than any animal hide I have ever felt. Sinfiotli's knees bent as he took the skin. It was heavy, curiously so. Sinfiotli tentatively said, Father, it does not feel right in here. Those men, these pelts, I think this place is cursed. Sigmund's eyes turned icy. His voice was low and threatening as he replied, We are not cursed. My sister, who King Sighe made into an executioner, was cursed. We are free. Sinfiotli did not feel free. He felt trapped by his father's expectations. Sigmund took down the second hide. He flung the pelt over his shoulders and moved the wolf's head to sit atop his own. Sinfiotli hesitated, but gave in and mirrored his father. His body wavered under the weight. His legs shook, about to give out. Sinfiotli tilted to jostle the pelt from his back, but it would not move. Frowning, Sinfiotli tried to peel the hide from his shoulders, but it was stuck. He yanked on it. He cried out at a sharp pain in his shoulders. It felt like his skin was ripping. He peered at his shoulder. The fur was fused to the skin beneath it. He looked at Sigmund in alarm, but his cry for help died on his tongue. It was no longer his father that stood before him, but an immense dark gray wolf. Its body was huge, muscular and taut with tension, with a scraggly tail that whipped about. The beast reared back on its hind legs and let out a thunderous howl. 
Sinfiotli backed away, terrified. He was certain this wolf had eaten his father. His blood ran cold as another chilling howl answered the first. A second wolf, and it was close. Sinfiotli grabbed for his sword, but his hand felt different. He looked down and was shaken by what he saw. It was no longer the small, pale hand of a boy, but the immense paw of a wolf. That howl had not come from an encroaching predator. It had come from him. He was the other wolf, which meant... The gray wolf was Sigmund. Sinfiotli turned to meet the wolf's eyes. They were the same blue as his father's. The wolf that was Sigmund let out another bone-rattling howl. Sinfiotli responded in kind and his stomach growled. The sudden hunger was so painful it almost blinded him. Images floated through his mind of bone, blood, flesh. From Sigmund's quivering body, Sinfiotli guessed he felt the same. Father and son loped from the cabin into the night. Their path was lit by an immense glowing moon. As he ran, Sinfiotli felt the wind flow through his fur. His powerful legs pounded the ground. He moved so quickly that the world blurred around him. Saliva filled his mouth as his nostrils caught the scent of men. His thoughts receded and a powerful need took over. Sinfiotli could see the glint of lanterns on the main road through the trees, but he and Sigmund did not stop. They simply burst from the woods and descended on a pack of 12 soldiers gathered on the road. Sinfiotli sank his teeth into a man's neck. The blood burst sweetly in his mouth. His stomach roiled in satisfaction as the man's flesh slid down his throat. Soldiers fled. Their movement made his hackles rise. He lashed out a claw and slammed the nearest soldier to the ground. Skin tore like paper under his powerful jaws. Sinfiotli could feel his father close by, doing the same. They were equals, guided by identical instincts. Finally, Sinfiotli sat back on his haunches. The decimated bodies of at least eight soldiers littered the road. The rest had escaped. Sinfiotli stared at his own bloody paws. The flesh of men felt heavy in his belly. Sinfiotli's fur tingled as a breeze brushed against him. His eyesight was sharp and clear. He could hear animals rustling in the woods around them. His heightened senses made him feel delirious. Sigmund suddenly growled, low and threatening. But to Sinfiotli, he couldn't have been more clear. He said, you finally were able to kill. Son, it is time we go to the castle. 
Sinfiotli howled with joy. These were the words he had long waited to hear, that he was ready. Then, despite the heavy meal he had just had, his stomach growled. He was still hungry. Coming up, Sigmund and Sinfiotli seek revenge on King Sighe. Now, back to the story. Sigmund and his son Sinfiotli had lived in the woods for years, training for revenge on the king who had killed their family. When they donned two mysterious animal hides, they transformed into man-eating wolves. Sigmund's lust for revenge, like his appetite, was stronger than ever. After killing a small platoon of the king's soldiers, father and son were finally on their way to destroy King Sighe. In 375 BCE, the Italian bishop Saint Ambrose rejected the pagan idea of humans shape-shifting into animals such as wolves. He declared that a man becoming a beast was impossible because it defied the idea that man was made in God's image. In a Christian world, the werewolf was eventually aligned with Satan himself. By the medieval period, the werewolf was considered a tainted or cursed man who only changed with magical demonic assistance. Linking the werewolf to demonic possession allowed sympathy for the human part of the beast. Men who were vulnerable or given to vices were most susceptible to the devil's control and were therefore victims just as much as villains. This idea of the werewolf as a form of possession remained popular well into the Renaissance, when Europeans sometimes connected gruesome murders to attacks by werewolves. Today, we think of these murderers as serial killers, but centuries ago, Europeans used folklore to explain why individuals could commit unimaginably perverse acts. One famous example was Peter Stube, a wealthy German farmer accused of 16 grisly murders. His story was recorded in a late 16th century pamphlet and spread throughout Europe. According to the pamphlet, Peter was given a belt from the devil that allowed him to transform into a wolf. When you look at the werewolf as a folkloric reaction to serial killing, a number of similarities between the two villains start to emerge. The werewolf walks among us, hiding an inner evil that cannot be contained when the moon is full. A serial killer similarly looks and acts human, but hides their gruesome urges under their benign appearance. In both cases, the human face is the mask they wear to the world, disguising their true nature. Sigmund howled as he led his son Sinfiotli through the woods. His body pulsed with adrenaline at the thought of facing the man who took everything from him, King Sighe. With the aid of these magical wolfskins, his son, the weakling that he had fretted over, was finally strong enough to fight alongside him. The flickering lights from a small village pulled him from his thoughts. 
Fires, citizens assembling for their nightly meal, light they assumed kept them safe. Sigmund's belly roared as their scent hit his nostrils. He leapt from the woods into the gathering. They scattered, shrieks of terror drowning out the sounds of the night. Sigmund lunged at a screaming woman. His claws pinned her to the ground. He ripped out her throat in one bite, cutting off her wail. He fed viciously, unthinking, barely able to see what was before him, driven only by the smell of blood and the musty odor of human fear. Father and son rampaged through the kingdom for 10 nights. Each time Sigmund fed, it only fueled his rage, his craving for the blood of the king. In the day, they slept in their human forms, during which time Sigmund dreamed of his revenge more vividly than ever before. Sigmund did not know whether his son shared his violent dreams. He noticed that the boy had become wilder. The wolf had taken his mind as well as his body, and no animal or human was safe in his path. His son's strength was not focusing him, but making him more unhinged. On the 11th night, blood-soaked and drunk off adrenaline, Sigmund and Sinfiotli reached King Sighe's castle. Sigmund crouched and stared at it with loathing. Sinfiotli hurried forward, his mouth frothing, but Sigmund snarled, you are too bold, son. This task will require a careful approach. Sinfiotli's manic eyes bore into his father. He snarled furiously, but Sigmund did not give his son a chance to respond. He took off toward the castle. Sigmund was precise, but made no effort to be silent as he moved through the castle's halls. He tore through every man who stepped into his path, enjoying their screams and how quickly he cut their voices short. He prowled until he caught a lingering, rancid odor. King Sighay. Sigmund followed the king's foul scent through the castle. It grew in strength until it led him to the place that haunted his dreams, the cellar. Sigmund crept down the damp stone stairs. The space was dark, but that did not matter to his lupine eyes. Empty stocks covered in blood lined one wall of the cellar. His eye caught a flash of motion. From behind them, an enormous she-wolf lunged from the darkness, red eyes glowing. For the first time since his transformation, Sigmund felt fear. But just as suddenly, she disappeared. He shook off the vision. He did not need to be afraid of the she-wolf. This time, he was the predator that lurked in the shadows. His nostrils flared. The king's scent was strong. As he slunk further into the room, he heard a man's panicked cry. 
Please, do not hurt me. King Sighay cowered in the corner, a small knife in his hand. Sigmund towered over him. He smelled a new aroma as Sighay soiled himself. He pushed against the hunger churning in his belly. He needed to savor this. Sigmund opened his mouth to speak, to tell King Sigay who it was who finally would end his cruelty. But he could only let out a shuddering howl. Dread surged through him. He finally faced the king and he could not gloat or ask what had become of his sister. Sigmund stepped closer. This was not the end he had dreamed of, but it did have its irony. The king had sent a wolf to kill his family, and now a wolf would be his demise. Sigmund's iron-like jaws fastened around the king's shoulder. He cried out and the knife clattered to the floor. Sigmund released him, only to lunge forward and bite off the king's jaw, a deadly kiss. The king choked on the blood that poured down his throat. Sigmund's teeth snapped in vicious bursts. He nipped off the king's ear, then his nose. Bones splattered against the walls as Sigmund took his revenge in bite-sized snacks. Sigmund stopped. He could hear Sinfiotli's howl in the distance. His son was in trouble. Sigmund raced outside, where 20 soldiers surrounded Sinfiotli. His son limped slowly, quarrels and wooden shafts poking from his fur. Sigmund attacked. One by one, the soldiers fell away with a scream, until finally, Sigmund had cleared Sinfiotli's path. Sinfiotli's body was a mess, covered in cuts and riddled with arrows and spears. Sigmund asked, why did you not wait for me? Sinfiotli groaned out his reply, I wanted you to see how strong I am. Sigmund felt no pity, only fury, an uncontrollable rage. He had not raised a warrior, he had raised a fool. Before he knew what he was doing, Sigmund tore into his son's throat, ripping out his windpipe. Sinfiotli gasped for air and clawed at the lethal wound. Sigmund watched, unfeeling, as the life drained from his son's eyes. A familiar sound called Sigmund's eyes to the sky. Above, the raven circled. Its calls reverberated in Sigmund's ears. He blinked, his heart rate slowing. His strength seeped out of him as he became lucid and beheld his dying son. Odin had called him back, but Sigmund wished he had not. Sigmund tilted his head back and let out a grief-stricken howl. 
As he did, the raven swooped down, dropping a leaf onto Sinfiotli's fur. But Sigmund barely noticed the gesture. Instead, he continued to howl in pain. When he looked back down at Sinfiotli, his jaw dropped. Sinfiotli's wounds had begun to close. The bleeding stopped and Sinfiotli sat up. Sigmund watched, mesmerized, as the sunrise washed over them. Sinfiotli's pelt fell from his shoulders. He was again an 11-year-old boy, staring at his father in terror. Sigmund looked down at his own hands. The fur was gone, and human skin had taken its place. Sigmund shrugged the pelt off and wrapped his son in a hug. Tears streamed down his face as he apologized over and over again. He silently thanked Odin. The god had not just saved his son, he had brought them both back from the darkness. Sigmund and Sinfiotli burned the wolf pelts. In their new forms, they had accomplished their revenge. But where they had once been cursed with an obsession, they were now cursed with another affliction, shame. They walked through the land for many years afterward, passing the devastated villages that they had ravaged as werewolves. Each corpse they saw bore the marks of their powerful jaws. The smell of flesh turned their stomachs, as did the knowledge of what they had done. Sigmund and his son made a solemn vow, never to slay a fellow human being again. They had done enough killing to last a lifetime. The father and son had lost their honor by becoming beasts. The relatable goal of revenge guides them at the outset of the story, but their transformation leads to murder and mayhem. This loss of honor is furthered by the ultimate evil act of Sigmund slaying his own son. Modern literature sympathizes with the werewolf more so than in centuries past. To name a few influential examples, the Harry Potter series shows the werewolf as a tragic figure by juxtaposing a gentle man with the terror that his wolfish transformation causes. The Twilight books embrace the idea of a wolf pack and depict their werewolves as deadly but loyal to their kin. The werewolf's famous hedonistic violence has not only been an influence on fiction, but on medicine and psychology. The word lycanthropy originates in lykos, which is Greek for wolf, and anthropos, which means human being. Lycanthropy is another word for the supernatural transformation of man into werewolf. But it's also a real clinical diagnosis. It's a rare psychiatric condition wherein one believes that they're changing into a wolf. Even as recently as 2019, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Philip Resnick diagnosed a man in Florida with clinical lycanthropy delusions after he killed his neighbors and bit one of their faces. 
Other modern diagnoses like hypertrichosis, a genetic disorder that causes extreme hair growth, as well as rabies and forms of psychosis, are all real medical ailments that could have been connected to ancient accounts of werewolves. Rabies in particular was common during ancient times. Without an understanding of the affliction, the madness brought about by the condition was likely terrifying. The werewolf has truly become a symbol for man's capacity for evil. We not only live in fear of being ripped apart by this beast's jaws, we fear knowing that we are capable of becoming the monster ourselves. So if you're ever faced with the drooling maw of this terrifying beast, you may be better off hoping that it finishes you off. Even death would be better than living as an unwilling killer. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the werewolf, amongst the many sources we used, we found The White Devil, The Werewolf in European Culture by Matthew Beresford, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to join Alastair Murden every Thursday for the all-new series, Haunted Places, Ghost Stories. Don't miss the most chilling spirits ever imagined by authors from around the world. Follow Haunted Places, Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>